All right, let's start with the announcements. So, Sunday's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe the biggest deal in the Christian, not maybe, it's the biggest deal in the Christian calendar. And it's what? Easter. Resurrection. Resurrection Sunday. I'll go with Easter, though, but I, Resurrection Sunday is better. Um, and I've managed to keep forgetting to announce this. I don't know why. Um, but we have a community Easter sunrise service with um, several other churches. It is at the Methodist Church this year. I'm preaching it. So, so you have to come. To okay. Say, Baby, you are right. Oh, they were right? What? I was like, I'm sure he's not because he would have said something. <laughs> no, I wouldn't because I forget those kinds of things. And I'm, church I'm, all very, the I'm very bad at it. So the Methodist Church, which is across from the, the Dead Mall, there's, we're going to talk about the resurrection across from the graveyard. So, um, so that'll be at 7.30. So we're calling it a, and this we do it this way every year. It's a sunrise service, which we can gather at 7.30 and discuss the sunrise that we saw an hour ago. But anyway, I guess for a lot of us, maybe 7.30 is better. It's been that way since I've been a pastor in Gautier, so I don't know where that started, but that's just what it is. Um, so 7.30 this Sunday at the First United Methodist Church of Gautier. I believe it'll just be inside in their regular setup. There may be donuts afterwards, but we'll also have donuts here. So just leave there, come here. That'll, that'll work fine. I mean, eat their food, then, then come here. I won't have to prepare as much. So I think there will be some sort of breakfast item um, to follow. So 7.30, about an hour, and uh, we do it every year, so you're always invited, and it's always somewhere. We hosted it a few years ago. And uh, this is the first time I've preached it in a decade, so I'm excited. I was still a little, not shorter, but, well, maybe thinner. There was less of me back then, but a much younger man uh, last time I preached. I had a lot more hair um, last time. So I am excited to do that. So mark your calendar. Get up early or maybe on time, whatever that is for you. It's 7.30, First United Methodist. No reason to go home. Just come over here and uh, hang out with us until we celebrate Easter together. It's the only announcements I have at the moment. So are there any others that I'm not yet aware of or have, you know, maybe forgotten about? I know that happens. Is it going to be the same sermon at both places? It will not. Oh. It will not. I won't be quite as nerdy in public. Oh. <laughs> okay. We'll have to dial it back a little bit. Okay. So, no, it'll be good. It, but it will be very different messages. The, the morning one will focus on the event. And our Sunday morning service will focus on the theological implications of the event. I mean, we'll talk about the event a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I think you know what I'm saying. All right, so let's pray, and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for tonight. Pray that you bless this time we spend together. Let it honor your name. Uh, let it provoke and encourage us to study the scriptures and understand them more thoroughly. Pray that you would uh, bless us with clarity of thought and understanding as we read your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so introduction we are in as of tonight part two of a series that has two parts so we did part one now we're in part two part one had four little parts part two will have five little parts so you should see a paper that says the basics that's the name of our series the basics and then now we are we were in foundational beliefs now we are in identifying beliefs what we're doing as we are walking through our church's statement of faith. Our statement of faith is not 
real long and elaborate. It's more bullet point oriented, but there is a lot of elaborate and technical detail that goes with some of these points. So we're walking through them. The first category, and this, we, we arrange ours a little different than you see in a lot of churches. Um, the first category is what we call foundational beliefs. Those are the ones that you have to agree with to be a member of our church. But we would also say, if you disagree with these, it might not be proper to even call you Christian. So these aren't what make us a unique church. These are what make us a Christian church. And so we discussed four things. One was, and we use big words every now and then, Trinitarian monotheism, which was a very fancy way of saying we believe in how many gods? One. one. And what's interesting about that one God? He's three persons, all right? And he is creator. Trinitarian monotheism. Next, we looked at the historical gospel events. That was the death, ultimately, and resurrection of Christ. We did include um, the incarnation and the ascension with that. Um, those are basic elements of Christianity. If you deny that Jesus actually became a man, if you deny that he died on the cross, you deny that he rose from the dead, you deny that he sits at the right hand of the Father now, you are outside of camp. This is basic 101 Christianity. I don't care what flavor Christianity you have, you've got to have that or you can't claim Christianity. The next, we looked at what we called the five solas, which is just a way to talk about the doctrine of salvation. That is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, and all to the glory of God alone. And then finally, we talked about bodily resurrection. That's one that's foundational. It's in every creed that we have as Christians. You can't find an old creed of the church that doesn't contain the resurrection of the body as one of the last, if not the last statement. Yet it's one that's poorly taught, if ever taught in church in America these days. So we, we hit that pretty hard. So we covered that last week. Now we are moving into identifying beliefs. So these, within the faith, there's room for disagreement. That doesn't mean I'm not going to disagree, but it means that we can disagree here, and it may be hard for us to do church together, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we disagree here. Okay, so the last four weeks have been pretty dogmatic. This is what it is. Take it or leave it, but realize you're taking Christianity or leaving Christianity. Now we're getting into things that our church believes and operates by. You have to have a position on these topics. To have no position really is to have a type of position. So we have positions. All of us have theology, whether you've thought it through or not. You have a systematic theology that you operate by. This is our on-purpose system. So we're going to go through five different topics that cover several things. The first topic is the ordinances. And so the ordinances is baptism and the Lord's Supper. As we dive into these topics, we land in specific places on some of the questions that come up on baptism and the Lord's Supper. So this is the way we think about our identifying beliefs. You don't have to agree, but you have to agree to deal with it. They're not up for discussion. We, we do it, this, and when we say not up for discussion, we're happy to talk about any of these things. I mean, there's not going to be a decision where we decide to quit baptizing by immersion or a decision where we change our theology of the Lord's Supper. That's not happening. This is what we are. This is what we believe. This is what makes us the type of church that we are. So we're happy to dialogue, and occasionally people are members of the church who may disagree at different points 
here, but it's not up for discussion in that sense. This is what we do. This is how we do it. And if you're willing to do it that way, as long as you agree with the first set, we'll affirm you as a brother or sister in Christ. Um, but for the sake of unity, do it, do it our way. This, this is what makes us a church. And so we're going to do it this way. So the first topic we're going to cover is ordinances, which in our case is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Everybody follow the basic idea. So I'm going to be dogmatic in a sense here, but this is a different type of dogmatic than the last group. The last group, if you disagree, you're not a believer. This group, if you disagree, you're just wrong. Okay. <laughs> I had to do that at some point. Okay, so you get what I'm saying. It's not a matter of whether or not you are a Christian in these areas we are going in. I would say it's a matter of whether or not you have a cohesive system. Uh, I believe this is what the Bible teaches. It's not just because I, I feel like I want this to be the way. But historically, people have studied the scripture and landed here. We're part of that particular narrative. I don't know what that was about, but <laughs> okay. You know, this is a Wednesday night. I say that, but it would happen on a Sunday morning. Okay, so let's dive in. You should be on the part. <laughs> baptism comes first, so you're on the right side of the page if you're on baptism. So we're just going to talk about it in general. And then we'll dive into some scriptures that talk about baptism. So right at the beginning, you see I have a word affixed to the word baptism. The word is credo. Anybody have any idea what that's a reference to? Right. A creed, which is a statement of I believe. So we connect belief to baptism. Anybody know the term for the other option? Instead of belief, pedo baptism. Pedo is a reference to kids. kids, children, infants, really. Infant baptism. So belief baptism versus infant baptism. All right, so let's just fill in some blanks. We're thinking about history here mostly for these first three. Baptism was one of the earliest topics that, that divided churches during the Reformation. One of the earliest topics that divided churches during the Reformation. From the most part, from a historical perspective, we're looking at Reformation forward. Um, prior to Reformation, we have a very long period of the church being Roman Catholic. And then before that, being more, well, I don't want to get too aggressive here, being more biblical. And uh, the Reformation, in a lot of ways, was going back to those roots. And so I'm just going to kind of survey history really from that vantage point rather than doing a whole church history scenario. We, we do that pretty regularly with our Reformation Month things, so I feel like that is a safe thing for us to do tonight. So baptism was one of the earliest topics that divided churches during the Reformation. So think about the implications here. So you have one group of people saying, if I baptize my baby, now it's a member of the family of God. So would you want to baptize your baby if that was the theology? Well, well, sure. To not baptize your baby would be like a form of child abuse. So imagine your neighbors quit baptizing their babies. How do you feel about your neighbors now? Well, that just seems unjust. How can we have neighbors, people calling themselves Christians, who are going to send their children to hell? You see how that can kind of stir some controversy. What a trivial matter for them. There was bloodshed over this question 
of is it proper to wait until they're adults, to wait until they express faith, and or whether or not we baptize them as babies. So this divided them from a very early time. You've probably heard this expression, anabaptism. You heard that before? Yeah. Anabaptism. Anabaptism was the practice of re-baptizing. That's what Anna meant. Re-baptizing. So if you think about our context, being Roman Catholic, how many Roman Catholics, when they're adults, have been baptized? Well, by their definition, all of them. When? When they were when they were babies. They were sprinkled. I mean, from a Baptist perspective, we might not call it baptism. But there's that was baptism. So if a group comes along and says, "Now we're going to do believers' baptism," and they baptize this person, then they were really they were branded as rebaptizers. Does that make sense? That's what anabaptism meant. Rebaptize your Roman Catholic baptism wasn't good enough, so we're going to rebaptize you, give you a real baptism. They would say so. That's where the term anabaptism came from. So they only did. Sorry, anabaptism was the practice of rebaptizing believers who had had been baptized as infants in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the name eventually shortened to Baptists. Now, at the time, that was a very specific denomination. Now, Baptist isn't even a fair term to use um, because the word is too broad. So we're Baptist. Assembly of God churches are Baptist. There's a lot of different types of churches that are Baptist by this very strict definition. They baptize believers. But we have a more specific system than that. But that's kind of where that comes from. We'll, we'll get into our system in some more particulars as we work through the scenario. But uh, that's where we are. Yeah. When did baptism start? When did baptism start in general? So biblically, it starts with John the Baptist. But historically, we would say there were some baptism people who baptized prior to John. He's the first one on the scene, radar, so to speak. Um, but there's no baptism in the Old Testament in this sense. And we'll, we'll actually go over that in just a second, um, what he was doing with that idea of baptism. Because it was something very different than it became in, in the church history. Okay, so last point. The initial Anabaptism movement was focused on the New Testament alone. So the idea here is a very strict if you've ever heard this expression, regulative principle, meaning in church, we do whatever the New Testament says and nothing that it doesn't say. Does that make sense? Which is why if you apply that strictly today, you definitely have instruments in the Old Testament and worship services, but you don't have a single letter of Paul talking about instruments in the worship service, not mentioned, not condemned, just not mentioned, Therefore, not appropriate. That's a strict regulative principle. And my argument on that is always, there's no air conditioning. You know, there's no chairs. There, there's no pulpit. But okay, you know, we'll, we'll get to the side. But that's how that's working. The first Baptists were of that variety. But as the system developed, and it turned into a fully biblical system of belief. It became a fully systematic system, which is what I and we as a church subscribe to now. All right, so what is 
baptism. Let's start with um, John the Baptist. So open to Matthew. And, and we've talked about this from a different vantage point, but I want to talk about it now specifically from the context um, of baptism. So Matthew chapter 3, we have the story of John the Baptist. So it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what's the key verb in that statement? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Repent. Very big word. Repent. And what's the word repent mean? So we usually use it to mean turn around, right? So you, you go in this way, you make a 180. That's, that gets at the idea, but it's not quite the right idea. All right, let's use modern lingo, and I'll make the same expression in modern lingo and see if you can give me a different term. All right, so North Korea invades our country, all right? And they say, repent, they're telling us this, repent for the kingdom of Korea is at hand. What do they mean? Go to the re-education camp. <laughs> well, well more than submit. You said go to the re-education camp. Well, well that's what they do. So the whole concept of repent for the kingdom of Korea is at hand is revoke your American citizenship, join up with North Korea. Well, what would we call that? <laughs> Treachery. Well, so what would North Korea be doing? What would we call them? That's an invasion, right? And we're saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're saying God's kingdom is invading. You need to switch allegiance from the kingdom that's being invaded to the kingdom that is invading. That's what John means by baptism. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. You're on the wrong team. You need to switch teams right now. Total ideology change. Now, what symbol is John the Baptist using to represent that sort of repentance? Total ideology shift. What's his symbol? Baptism. So, blank, there's John preached a baptism of repentance. That's what he's doing. Baptism of repentance, which is why you have this tension. Jesus comes up to get baptized, you can see that John is thinking, why? You're already on the right team. You don't have any sin to repent of. It's a more complicated scenario going on there. But the fact that John's confused shows us how John was using it. He saw it strictly tied to that change of ideology. So if you think about it then, baptism represented death to one system, and then new birth into a new system. So how does baptism represent that right there? There's your water. You're buried, and you come back up. Really the metaphor is resurrection. Death and resurrection. Go in, you come back out. You used to be American, now you're Korean. All right, that's not what I'm saying. It's actually happening... But to make the illustration work, all right, so you used to be of the world, 
now you are of the kingdom of heaven. From the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. This is our lingo. From the darkness to the light. From the old self to the new self. All of this lingo is that transformation. That's what the word repentance means. So is it a 180? Yeah. But it's, it's a bigger picture 180 than just I was doing something and I quit doing it. It's I was following something and now I am following something else. It's a little bit more, but that's the idea. And that's what John was preaching. So the primary message of the gospel of Jesus included the same message of repentance with baptism as the sign of new birth. So the same message, same message as John the Baptist. And if you want me to prove that, just still in Matthew, we were in chapter 3, 2. Now look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was different in their two expressions? Not a thing. They're identical. Same message. Now, more authority when Jesus says it. The message isn't different. The messenger is. But it's the same message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then, of course, Paul the Apostle continues this exact same ministry with his, his preaching. So the Apostle Paul continues this usage of baptism in his ministry. Now, we could look at that in several places. Um, he even has a scenario where he finds people that have been baptized by John. But uh, that didn't count because it specifically had to be Christ. He was doing Christ's baptism, and so he rebaptized them. Um, but same thing. He, he's continuing exactly what Jesus was doing. All right. Why do we baptize? So you probably know how Matthew's gospel ends. If you've grown up in church, at some point in time, you had to memorize this verse of scripture. Or you got in trouble for not memorizing it, whichever way you want to look at it. But uh, you probably know it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations doing what? <laughs> Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So why do we baptize, number one? Jesus commanded us to baptize. He commanded us to baptize. Now, technically, I don't need any more reason to baptize than that one. Why? Because Jesus told us to do this. It doesn't have to get any more complicated. But I'll give you two more reasons, though they ought not be necessary. They're just supportive. That makes sense. I just want to be clear about why we're giving more reasons than that one. All right? And this is, okay, so I'm actually going to have to do some debate here because if I have Baptists in the room, which I suspect I do, there's going to be some, some disagreement about this word. So I'm going to be slow to write it on the board and prepare yourself. Baptism is a sacrament. It's another reason you need to baptize. Now, how many of you went, ooh, I don't know about that. That's not a good word. Okay, so, sacrament. You don't usually hear this word among Baptists because they're scared of the Roman Catholic usage of this word. All right, the Roman Catholics don't own the word because they misuse it doesn't mean the word's bad. It means their system is. Okay, The word means something much more precise, and we don't deny this element in either the Lord's Supper or baptism. They're, they're both sacraments in the proper sense. Now, the word literally means solemn oath in Latin. And this is one of those times where a word develops a usage that has nothing to do with its root. And so it, it, the usage of the word has nothing to do with solemn oath. 
somehow in Latin, that word solemn oath was used to translate the Greek word mysterious. How? I don't have any idea. But it really means mysterious more than it means what the Latin is. This is how it was used. Is that? No. Y'all can work with me. I don't know how to spell mysterious. I think at least two of those letters are flipped. But uh, y'all work with me. I don't have spell check on the board. Now, if somebody wants to invent that, I'll buy it. Or especially if it would, like, automatically correct it for me. That would be better. Okay. So, mysterious. Here's what we mean. Throughout church history, we have recognized that there's something special to baptism. There's something special to the Lord's Supper. So, I'm going to talk about both of them in this context. It's the same idea in both places. Now, we could divide any event like that into a physical component and a spiritual component. So physically, does anything happen when you get baptized? Yes. Yes, you, you, you get wet. You go underwater, or at least in their system, you at least got, you got wet, and then you come back up. There's a physical sensation to that. Now, are you getting saved literally when that happens? No, we're definitely not saying that. But can you do something physical and it have spiritual implications in any sense? All right. how, when you pray, how many of you close your eyes and bow your head? Most of you probably do. All right, the Bible doesn't say you have to do that. But there's something about doing that that it's, it's a physical action that's producing a spiritual sort of humility. Or have you ever done the reverse of that? Prayed like this, looking up to the heavens. Right? There's, it's a physical act, but there's a spiritual thing happening with it. We're not talking about magic here. We're not saying you do some particular motion, you create some sort of... I'm not going there at all. But in baptism, there's some sort of blessing to it. You ever sang a worship song, and it just moved you? The lyrics. Someone, hearing someone read scripture, hearing someone's prayer, or you seeing a sunrise, had this thing happen in you. It's sacramental when that happens. And there are some things that are given to us as sacraments. Some things just happen. You saw that sunrise, you couldn't help it. God spoke to you in that sunrise, in that song. But then there's some things the Bible gives us that we're commanded to do, that God has blessed. And baptism is one of those things. Getting to see a baptism is sacramental. But especially experiencing baptism, there's some sort of spiritual blessing to it. That's why the word here is mysterious. It's not saving you. It's not like there's some direct linear transaction. You get in the water and you get a dose of grace. Well, if it worked like that, I'd just you know, go dive in the water every day. It's, it's not a mechanical relationship. There's some sort of mysterious thing happening in baptism. And so should we do baptism? Yes. We have an actual physical way to represent a spiritual reality that the Lord blesses. And so, yes, it's sacramental in this sense, it can be used to mean you literally get a dose of grace that saves you to some degree. We do not mean that in any way. So a lot of times instead of sacrament, you'll hear the expression, a means of grace. Not saving grace, but we could call it sustaining grace or, you know, there's a joyous grace that we can receive. Baptism is one of those. And then third, baptism preaches 
the gospel. Baptism preaches the gospel. You think about it. How many New Testament baptisms? That's an A. How many New Testament baptisms are hidden in a closet? How'd they do it? As publicly as they could. In fact, when we do baptism at the the river, uh, we chant that uh, expression from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, which historically probably is a baptismal chant. And the idea is we are proclaiming the gospel when we do baptism. We're showing a visual image of what it means to be saved. That's what baptism is doing. That's why we do it. Who do we baptize? We need to move quicker. All right, who do we baptize? In the New Testament... All clear examples of baptism are of adults. You could infer infant baptism if you really press hard and do some gymnastics when a household gets saved. But there's no direct, clear, in any sense example of infants getting saved, or sorry, well, of infants getting saved and then baptized, or just getting baptized. There's no clear example of that at all in Scripture. Furthermore, baptism represents our spiritual birth. Spiritual birth, not our physical birth. Now, anybody know why there's a strong desire to do baptism of infants? They're afraid their kids are going to hell. Okay, afraid their kids will go to hell. So, right. So, if we think about our doctrine of salvation. And we apply that to our understanding of baptism. We know that baptism cannot save. And so baptizing a baby cannot actually make them a believer. So it's not possible for that to work that way. So the reason people want to baptize babies, historically speaking, um, is because in the Old Testament, um, who got the sign of the covenant? What was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament? Circumcision. Circumcision. And... uh, who got circumcision? Men. Men only. And when? On the eighth day. Right? So the idea is a lot of people want to take that Old Testament concept and apply it to the New Testament concept and say, well, baptism is a sign of the New Testament covenant, so why would it be different? Well, think about the symbols. And I hate to get too graphic here. I'll try to do this as vaguely as possible. To enter... The covenant in the Old Testament, you literally had to pass through the sign of the covenant. Can you work it out? I don't want to get specific. Circumcision, to get into the covenant, you had to pass through circumcision. Not just receive it. Men or women, that's how you get in. Because how do you become a Jew? Well, by birth. You're born in. It's the seed. That's how you get in. How do you get in in the New Testament? Belief, conversion. Our symbol follows the entry point. 
So we have no reason to give that entry point at the beginning because our symbol is about faith, not being born into it. Does that make sense? We get into a lot of interesting things here, but uh, there's a whole system of theology that's different between us and like Presbyterians, and this, this is where that system is different. Those are the basics. Everybody clear on the general idea there? I don't want to get too deep into the weeds. Okay, how do we baptize? So full immersion means here's the water, here's the person. person needs to be like this. Completely under, right? All right, so full immersion. Why do we do it that way? Historically, a lot of people sprinkle. Um, why do we do full immersion? Number one, full immersion makes the most sense of the Greek word for baptize. In some translations, all right, so the Greek word for baptize is baptize. Um, we just transliterate it into English, baptizo. It's, it's just the same word transliterated in the English language. And in some languages, the word is not baptize, it's dip. So when you dip something underwater, that's the idea. The Greek word itself means to dunk, to, to put it under. So the most literal sense of the word itself does mean to put you under the water. That's what the word basically means. Second, full immersion makes the most sense of Paul's analogy for baptism in Romans 6. The analogy is what we went over a minute ago where Paul says we're buried with Christ in baptism and we raise to new life in him. So you, are you buried if I sprinkle some dirt on you? Right? So the concept was put you in the ground, you raise the new life. So immersion makes much better sense of the analogy. Right, then last, this is just as important as everything else. We are commanded to baptize in the Trinitarian name of God. Trinitarian name of God, which is there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You ever been into a baptism and you hear that? I baptize you whoever, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ, risen to new life. So that's the, that's the way we do it. That's the way we're commanded to do it. It's very important that we do it that way. All, right. one of the, all the earliest Catholic churches going back into antiquity have honest to goodness baptistries where there were pools, and even the mosaic tiles show pools. Well, our first... Um, historical document stating a mode other than immersion was in the Didache, and it was what to do if you were in extremely cold conditions and did not have access to unfrozen water. And so if, if you literally can't baptize, because that's not an option for you, before you had, you know, heaters, indoor systems like that, they had a mode you could do that they would accept. But the fact that they had to say that shows you what they were doing. So the exception proves the rule. That's what that expression means. Does that make sense? So obviously, they were doing full immersion at the very beginning. Just to go back to the comment about the child being buried. Yeah. When I was raised as Catholic, we were told by the priest that baptism was specifically removed According to the Catholic Church, everybody's born with original sin. You can't get rid of it anyway. So that's probably why they were telling her that that child was going to be condemned to hell because that's not our belief. Right, right. But that, that's, that's why the Catholic Church. Yeah, so we don't believe baptism literally removes sin, yeah. literally say, literally gives you grace. We think there's a, a grace in it that's of the, the blessing sort. 
there's a joy and a delight and a presence of the Lord in it that's not in my cup of coffee in the morning, you know, even though uh, maybe that is kind of nice too, but different level, right? Okay, let's flip the page. Let's hit the Lord's Supper because we've got like 20 minutes. Okay, Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper caused intense controversy during the Reformation period. Intense controversy. This was the centerpiece of worship. Um, we think about the big controversy over worship these days as a controversy over what? Music. Music. Not even on their radar. If there was a topic to argue about, wasn't even baptism at first, the, the topic to argue about was Lord's Supper, Eucharist. How do we do communion? This was the centerpiece. The reason is because it was the focus of worship services for most of the church history. Sorry, the focus of worship services for most of church history was the Lord's Supper. This was the centerpiece for them, especially in Roman Catholicism. And so because it was a centerpiece, it got elevated and then elevated and then elevated. And what happens when you keep elevating something? You, you, you miss, you start doing it wrong. You over, that's what the Pharisees did, right? They loved the law, but they put it in a position that was incorrect. And same sort of thing happened. That's why the Lord's Supper was such a big deal. In fact, Luther and Zwingli could not get along because they had, from our estimation, what would be a fairly small disagreement on the nature of the different. I mean, you almost have to have a degree in metaphysics to understand how they were different in their presentation, and they weren't willing to even claim that they were on the same team over that little difference. It's the centerpiece for them. It was a really big deal. So let's just deal with the basic question. What is the Lord's Supper? Number one, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during his last Passover meal with his disciples. Passover meal. Can anybody give me a quick history of what the Passover meal is? Where it came from? Exodus. Exodus. It's the celebration of God about to deliver his people from Egypt, um, and it's synonymous with the tenth plague, because they're passed over during that tenth plague. They eat this meal, they eat it quickly, and then they were free to go after they ate that meal. So they celebrated that meal together. It was a celebration of their deliverance, both literally, but really more so than that, spiritually, they saw that as the symbol. So how often did they do the Passover celebration? They did it every year. They celebrated the Passover meal. So Jesus is basically taking this Passover meal and saying, in one sense, I'm the Passover lamb. I'm going to be sacrificed. You will be passed over. And then he goes beyond fulfilling the Passover meal and gives them a way to do Passover from a New Testament perspective because we have no need to celebrate the Israelites' exodus. Instead, we want to celebrate that Christ is our Passover lamb. And so that's what the Lord's Supper is. So the Lord's Supper, number one, wait, where are we at? I'm skipped down. The Lord's Supper, yeah, I can't read. <laughs> Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. I gave you that one already. Sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting too into this. Second point. So he gave the Lord's Supper as a memorial meal, just like the Passover meal, to remind his people of their salvation. Memorial meal to remind his people of their salvation. So that's the base of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we should be reminded of salvation. Okay, so let's talk about the basic elements. The Lord's Supper consists of two elements. The bread represents the 
body of Christ, which is broken. The wine represents the blood of Christ, which was poured out for us. So interestingly enough, out of the two main elements of the gospel, the Lord's Supper signifies which one of them? Crucifixion. The sacrifice itself. We are proclaiming, Paul would say, the Lord's death until he comes. So we are focused in this sacrament. We are focused on the death, the literal death of Jesus Christ. So he, his body was broken and his blood was shed. So what happens in the Lord's Supper? So just like with baptism, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. There is a real spiritual benefit in the Lord's Supper. So I want to give you a paradigm to think about. If the most meaningful moment of worship for you has been in a song or a sermon, it might not be the most memorable, meaningful thing you could have had. The Lord's Supper is a direct, sacramental thing given to us with real, spiritual, tangible application. Well, one good example of this is a negative example in 1 Corinthians 11. What happens, or what happened in that church to people who were taking the Lord's Supper and they weren't doing it with a proper attitude? Some of them got ill. Some died. There's a real thing happening there. This is given to us by God. There's a real thing going on in the Lord's Supper. So I was listening to a guy talk about um, some neat experiences different people had had with the Lord's Supper. And, and he gave me this one story that I thought was just really touching. And it, it, this is years ago. It helped me think about the Lord's Supper a little bit differently. It was at a church that practiced the Lord's Supper by intinction, which is a fancy word, but it just means, have you ever been to a church where you tear off a piece of the bread, then you dip it in a common cup, and you eat that piece? That's called intinction. And so in this one particular scenario... Um, the guy had went to pull a piece off from the bread, and he he, he he caught a like a string. You know what I'm talking about? Pull off a piece of bread, and it, it's not that little piece you pull off. It's like, and it's like this tail hanging down. Well, well, the idea is like, really, you're supposed to eat the whole piece you pull off. So it's like, there's a mouthful of bread, you know. So he's, he dips it in, and how? You know, I still wind it down him. Mm. and is chewing on it. You know, it's kind of awkward. Everybody kind of giggles. They see what's going on. But then he just had this sense of that's how satisfying the work of Christ is. It's, it was a mouthful to him. It was more than he could chew. It was almost uncomfortable to take. And uh, it, for him, it just suddenly became a, a spiritual symbol. Not, I'm not saying he got saved. It's not that kind of thing. But it was a real blessing involved. There was a real spiritual moment involved and that's what the lord's supper is and we get to do that not once but regularly so the baptism happens at conversion but you get to do the lord's supper all the time i've heard it explained this way baptism is like your marriage ceremony and the lord's supper is like anniversary or date night does that make sense you get to do that a lot marriage happens once same, same sort of thing. All right, the bread and wine, important for us, remain bread and wine at all times and are never more than bread and wine. So it's bread the whole time. 
the whole time. Well, I mean, technically, after you eat it, it can quit being bread. But you follow what I'm saying. It's bread and it's wine, or I guess in our context, it's grape juice the whole time. Um, no change there. But God's presence does manifest in the Lord's Supper in a special way, but not in a physical way. We're not saying the body of Christ in a literal sense is present. That's not what we're saying. We're saying there's something else. There's, there's a manifestation of God's presence here in the Lord's Supper. All right, now here's where a lot of the controversy comes in. So who can take the Lord's Supper? Here's our general statement. The Supper is restricted to believers who are in a state of repentance before the Lord. So I put 1 Corinthians 11 there. Of course, that's the passage I just referenced. But uh, this is a good one just to know and uh, see in your Bible. And that's that whoever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper. So not only do you need to be a believer, you need to be in a state of repentance. Now note, I say this every time we take the Lord's Supper. You're not looking for sin in your heart when you examine yourself. There's sin in your heart. There's definitely sin in your heart. That's not what you're looking for. What are you looking for? Repentance. Is that your attitude towards your sin? Repentance. Are you looking for repentance in your heart? So as the Apostle Paul, coming from that passage, um, tells believers in Corinth to examine themselves, we encourage believers to examine themselves before taking the Lord's Supper. So who does he make chiefly responsible in this examination process? The believer. The individual. The individual believer is chiefly responsible. So we believe the final assessment of the heart should be left to the believer. But I have a caveat, okay? There's a caveat to this conversation. That's the last point. So you need to make that assessment. When you're taking the Lord's Supper, we always provide this opportunity. You need to take a moment. That's why we, we read that passage. We wait a minute. Let you have a moment of repentance, confession before the Lord. Examine your heart. And honestly, if you're in a position one Sunday morning and you just know you're not repenting at the moment, don't take it. That in of itself is an act of confession. There's a spiritual thing to that. I encourage you to do that one Sunday. Now, I'm not encouraging you not to repent. <laughs> but if you know that's not where you are right now, that idea of passing out, just be faithful to the text. Be honest with where you are. Do that assessment. But there's just another scenario involved. So that whole conversation is talking about believers. Right? So I'm going to, a lot of people claim to be who aren't, and you know, there's a, a secret side of the heart. I can't know who the difference is. I want you to examine your heart. But there's another piece here. The church can and should fence usual lingo used in this topic the church can and should fence the table the table is a reference to the Lord's Supper fence the table through church discipline we've talked about church discipline a number of times we've practiced it to the final degree a couple of times and historically speaking church discipline didn't mean you couldn't be here 
it meant you couldn't take the Lord's Supper with us. Because we were removing our affirmation that you're actually a believer. And so church membership, if you remember, this is a whole different topic. But church membership is a way of saying, yeah, you're a believer. You're, we, we vouch for you. You're the real deal. may not be a perfect real deal, but you are actually a believer. Church discipline is what happens when we reach a point in that process of disciple making where we have to back away and say, we can't affirm that you are. I mean, it could be that you are, but we can't tell. And because of your unrepentance, because of your open sin, because of your unwillingness to turn, uh, we can't affirm you as a believer anymore. And church discipline, technically speaking, is a means of fencing the table. So in terms of everyday life, you examine your own heart. That's between you and the Lord. We want to give you the opportunity. But if we reach a point where we have to excommunicate someone, think about excommunion them. Excommunicate. They're not allowed to do communion with us anymore. That's what that means. So hopefully that won't happen much. (laughs) But it can. And that's saved for cases of times where we cannot say that you are a follower of Christ. We have to remove our affirmation. Our affirmation in the end of the day doesn't determine whether or not you're a believer. Um, But we're supposed to try to, at least as best as we can, make church membership and true salvation the same thing. We're not going to be perfect. We're not always going to get it right. Chances are we're going to keep more people in who are goats than we're going to kick wolves out. Just historically, that's more likely to happen unless you're in a really pharisaical type environment. But uh, And then maybe then it's not even a true church. So that's a different conversation, different topic. All right, any questions on this topic? Look at this, seven minutes early. Any questions? All right, in the back. So, so you kind of have the, the dichotomy there of is this really biblical? What's going on? And I must respect my elders. Right. Okay. Two kind of two different questions happening here. First, let me deal with the fact if you're in a church and you do disagree over something like this, um, yeah, you need to respect the eldership in that church. If you can't, you need to leave. Um, that would be one topic. All right, the second is just the issue that's going on. Um, so I don't think we should just baptize any four-year-old that comes along and says they believe in Jesus. Because I want my kids to know what they're talking about when they do that. I'm not worried that if I wait too long, they won't actually be saved. Because baptism doesn't save. I want baptism to have that element of meaning and so I'm, I tend to be more restrictive in how soon I would do it. Um, but if I was convinced, hey, this, this kid gets it, and I wouldn't restrict baptism. Who, who should be convinced, though? 
I would say the elders of the church in that scenario. Are you saying parents versus elders? Yes, because are you, you just said that the sacraments are that mysterious, that mm-hmm. blessing. And if you have a true believer that's a child and you're withholding the sacraments from them, in a sense, you're, you're not inviting them into the fold of God. And you are robbing them Yeah, I'd be way more fearful of giving them those sacraments incorrectly than withholding them too long. A pastor is accountable for doing it wrong. Six or seven years is a long time to not be sure. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm talking about a specific scenario that I'm not actually part of. So it's it's difficult to to speak into a real scenario that I'm not one of the elders in, you know. Um, but six years is a long time I mean, for for a kid to be saying they are. A and, child that is convinced, and we have no reason to doubt that he's a believer, and he feels like a second-class citizen. Yeah, well, old enough to feel like a second-class citizen. Yeah. Yeah, so I would, I would wonder if they're waiting too long, just based on what you're saying. But I would say... I, I myself, I would rather wait a little too long than do it too early. Uh, that's the, I would err that direction, um, just myself personally. But again, remember, we're in the, the realm of it's not going to determine whether or not you're a believer where, where you land here. And I want to do what's best, what's most practical, ultimately what's most biblical. Um, but I, I would rather wait a little too long than do it too early myself. That's not what you wanted to hear. But. <laughs> I know what I to hear. Yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand. Biblically, I didn't really see where waiting was, was right either. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how personal you're talking about it yet. But when I was a child, I became saved very young. My freshman day happened when I was four. And the pastor waited a year before he was baptized. But my parents chose not to wait. They were suffering while I was older. And I understand that now because I didn't understand all the ramifications of that at that time. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I agree with you, Brian, in the respect that I know a lot more people who were baptized early mm-hmm. and were not Christians, but at some point they thought they were. I think the greatest danger is until you're able to examine them a little closer yeah. and it's yeah. not emotional. Yeah. I, I think. Sure, yeah. I think we do more damage by baptizing early because then you give them this, call what it is, it's a false sense of security. And, hey, I'm, I'm in, I'm good. Yeah. And those I mean, one expression, I don't want to inoculate anyone yeah. to the gospel or, or to the gospel tools, honestly. And that's, that's where I land. So I know it's a touchy topic. Are right, any other questions? Would be the heart of the Presbyterian. 
Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, to give a full defense, I need about an hour because I have to explain the difference between our concept of the covenants, and that difference is going to fully explain the how we interpret that passage differently. But to give it in a very simplistic term, I mean, just as a means of comparison, even in the Old Testament, if a household became Jewish, only half of them took the sign. Like, there, there's not a consistent... We give more people the sign in the New Testament than the Old Testament did. So... I, I, I think, so the system comes down to, in the Old Testament, it was it's purely a birthright. You, you come in, salvation was always by faith, even though you were born a Jew. And so the sign of the covenant, you could be in the covenant and not be a Christian, not be a true follower. In the New Testament, however, we would say there's no distinction between that. There's not a, a big circle covenant of God and then actual Christians inside of it. We think, no, there's one circle. And so we sync up different pieces of the covenant through that paradigm, and that makes us want to connect everything, to find the circle by the entry point to the true covenant of grace, which is faith. And so that, that paradigm forces us to interpret everything we see through that lens, whereas the Presbyterian wants to say the old covenant and the new covenant are fundamentally the same. They're one covenant administered two different ways. And so everything is essentially carried over in some direct fashion to the New Testament. And so we got to make baptism as Old Testament circumcision as possible. But that's not our framework. We're, we, so they read the infant baptism or the household and go, well, clearly. And then I read that passage from my system and go, well, clearly not. And so it's our system that's determining how we interpret that passage. So. And, I, and I know the passage, but I don't remember what it's saying. It just uh, it, it, his whole household. Right. So, so if you were to, but if you were to be specific, and, and I was a jailer, and you said he was baptized and his wife and all of his children, you could say, well, look, they were children, but my youngest is thirty. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? I think you you yeah. have to you have to read that into it. You have well, to see, that's what I'm saying. So your the system situation. the system you have going into that text right. will determine what you think that text means. And that's just it. You can't make yeah. it and so, and, from silence. And so I'm taking a, a system I, I feel like is fair to the scriptures as a whole and applying it to that text. To be honest, they're doing the same. And I would consider a conservative Presbyterian a very near neighbor, biblically speaking. In fact, I'm closer to some Presbyterians than some Baptists, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it just depends on how you draw the circles in different topics. So, Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and close this out. If there's more questions, I'm happy to continue, but I'll we'll officially end if anybody needs to head on out. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight and this opportunity to study the Word together. I pray that um, both baptism and Lord's Supper would take their rightful place in our systems, that we would see them for what they are commanded and the blessing that they have given to us um, by your grace. And God, I pray that you would bless us as a church as we partake of these sacraments and ordinances together. I pray that you would bless our church with an understanding that is faithful to Scripture. I pray that you'd help us to have a heart that desired to be faithful to Scripture and to weigh our systems according to Scripture. And we pray that you continue to move through us, help us to make disciples faithfully, to let our light shine so that you get the glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right.